This week on Dig Me Out, 80s Metal. With your hosts, Jason Ziak, Tim Minichi, and Chip Midnight. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Dig Me Out 80s Metal. Join us at Patreon to become a member of the Metal Union at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, what the hell is going on here? What's going on? (laughs) It's all happening. This has been in discussion for years and it's finally happening. Thanks to our additional co-host here. That's true. Chip. I couldn't couldn't carry all this mental knowledge on my own. I need somebody to, to no. back me up on it. The podcast Chip, I was born here because to of do. you. Yes. Hey, that's perfect. <laughs> I'm ready. Awesome. We got it. We got a good what 600, 700 uh 80s hard rock metal episodes in us. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> there those knuckles, folks. Stretch it out. Make sure you get limber. We're gonna be going for going at it for a while. Uh yeah. So we are going to dig into 80s metal perhaps we should define that create some parameters at the beginning of this episode just so people understand what we're talking about now we're not going to be talking about like metallica's master of puppets right probably not getting to that record maybe oh oh, we are well i'm thinking about like right i'm going back to to the time chip back me up on this like at the time you called it all metal you called it maybe some of it glam metal or glam or hair metal. The term hair metal did not exist until like yeah. some point in the nineties that was invented as a like pejorative, a, a negative term. Yeah. I, I, so I, like I had friends that and myself, like I listened to a little bit of heavier stuff like Iron Maiden, but I was also into Poison and Tesla and a bunch of other bands that we're going to eventually talk about. So like, right. And I was friends with people into heavier stuff and I was friends that, with people that were sort of more on the, the MTV pop side of it. So I, I would suggest I'm setting open. the I would suggest setting the boundaries as sort of anything that might have been on Headbangers Ball. Yeah. Something that I watched or recorded every Saturday night. And it, you know, it it went along with wh- whatever was happening on the charts. And so it would be 80% glam metal or classic priest, maiden. And then there would be there would always be those one or two or three videos, maybe towards the the very end of the show, a band like Death Angel or Violence or Suicidal Tendencies or things that like Yep. That ended up in that genre, but like was as far away from poison as you could be. Yeah. It kind of opened your mind to, you know, where the where else you could go in the genre. So if you came through the door of like for me it was through Kiss. Headbangers Ball sort of exposed you to a bunch of other adjacent sounds that you could start to get into. And it was funny, like, as those bands, the bands that were more commercial would then appear on, like, Dial MTV and, like, some of the daytime. Uh, so, like, there was, like, a 30, hard 30 or hard 60. There were some daytime yeah, yeah. MTV shows, too, that would play the more, like, commercial stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that's the bands we're talking about. You know, okay. it's kind of a big umbrella. We'll let the listeners suggest at digmeoutpodcast.com and her record i will but say we are going to stay more on the obscure side like yeah that's that's our sweet spot so we're up for you know stuff that wasn't huge um or 
was and you totally forgot about it or most people totally forgot about it and i will say there's a lot of like thrash the, the earlier days of thrash metal that mm-hmm. I really didn't pay a ton of attention to you. And so in the spirit of digging stuff out, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, I would, I would, I would encourage people if there's a good like eighties, uh, like I'm thinking of bands like forbidden. Mm, yeah. I, I know the name. I don't think I've ever listened to them. Like I would, I would, I would be interested in digging into that stuff. The one other thing I was thinking too, is that we're calling this what eighties metal, eighties hard rock. Mm-hmm. But, um, in my mind, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, it's sort of like calling somebody middle age, right? It's more of a, it's more of an idea, right? Like, so, yeah. um, so it, we could, we could hit some stuff in the early nineties or even mid nineties, right? It sort For of sure. falls within, we'll call it eighties metal, but, but, but that's a loose interpretation of really eighties. Yep. Yeah. Some of those records that came out in particular, the sort of pre 92 Nirvana Pearl Jam stuff where, it's still very much in the same spirit. What was going on in the eighties? It just happened to be released in like 91, 92. And then some albums were just like, were not, uh, there were some bands that just did not get influenced at all by what was going on in the nineties and just kept doing this thing. So yeah, yeah, we're, we'll be flexible on it. There's should be a ton of stuff to dig into. And I think ship, like you're saying with some of that early thrash stuff, there was a lot of like heavier stuff that I was intrigued by, but didn't, get into at the time either was just like didn't quite get it a little too scary <laughs> like, like and, saxon and and those bands. yeah well, but now but, i'm sure i would get and dig but i just haven't haven't had the opportunity to go back and had the recommendations of like what stuff is good to go listen to so but also there was no spotify there was no youtube so like you you had to go buy a saxon cassette or a forbidden cassette or a violence cassette and without hearing those songs on dial on tv or on headbangers ball that mm-hmm. was a big risk so mm-hmm. a lot a lot of that stuff i did miss and sure. it, it should be noted here that i'm the fish out of water in this particular <laughs> uh, group because i did not grow up listening to metal in the 80s i'm going to share with you um i have a hit a mixtape that i made oh of 85 86 this is 85 86 i actually made a spotify okay. playlist of this so these are the songs that are on this 85 86 playlist leads off with when the going gets tough by billy ocean followed by la bamba by los lobos here i go again by white snake <laughs> okay wipe out by the fat boys oh my goodness you got the look by prince <laughs> i've had the time of my life by bill medley and jennifer warns jacob's Wait, ladder dancing song yeah yeah Jacob's Ladder by Huey Lewis in the News, Holiday by Madonna, Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr., Don't Mean Nothing by Richard Marks, Faith by George Michael, Will You Still Love Me by Chicago, Easy Lover by Phil Bailey and Phil 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 Collins, Wipe Out Again by the Fat Boys, because I was a huge Fat Boys fan. You're kidding me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You're Only Human, Second Win by Billy Joel, which is a Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 only track. It's not an album track. Another Richard Marks song, Should Have Known Better. No Easy, no Easy Way Out by Robert Tepper from the Rocky Four soundtrack. R.O.C.K. in the USA by John Mellencamp. The Peter Gunn theme from the Blues Brothers movie. Oh. Dude Looks Like a Lady by Aerosmith. <laughs> of course. Okay. Hazy Shade of Winter by The Bangles. Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. The Super Bowl Shuffle by the Chicago Bears. Money Money by Billy Idol. Every Little Kiss by Bruce Hornsby and the Range. 
Come On, Let's Go by Los Lobos and ends with Shakedown by Bob Seger. So two things. We know why it's so important that Chip is here to help offset that. <laughs> but you're going to keep us grounded. You know, yeah. Chip, Chip and I might get a little too uh, nostalgic and, you know, it'd be hard to detach our emotions. So you'll keep us grounded in, in now, some of this. But the other, the other comment I have was, my God, was 85, 86 the weirdest time ever? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Um, now, it should be said that I do know about a lot of these bands because I did write a book about power balance. So I have knowledge of a lot of bands, but it's puddle deep because mm-hmm. all I did was go through and look for the power balance for all the songs or all these bands. I didn't listen to the full albums. I just was like, is that a slow song? Yeah, I'm taking that. I'm going to listen to that one. So like I've listened to a lot of Skid Row and Poison and Lita Ford and that kind of stuff, but maybe only three songs. Yep. So I don't have a deep knowledge when it comes to these records. Really, so probably the only band is is Motley Crue that we'll I have. Get you a, into the uh, album tracks. Yeah. Yes. Motley Crue, I, I actually have owned like Dr. Feelgood and Shout Out the Devil and um, Girls, Girls, Girls. No, I don't. I, that and Theater Pain, I don't own. Uh, what's, what's the first record? Is that self-titled or is that called Too Fast, Too Fast. for Love? Too Fast for Love. Yeah. So that's that and... I actually am. A, I like Cinderella, so uh, that I, I I think I own Night Songs, the first Ooh, record. Good. That's dark, but that's right, we, that's we it for work. me. Like it's pretty limited in terms of my, like when you guys talk about some of these bands like Badlands and and you know these bands, and I'm like I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you're about to find out. So this oh, is yeah. going to be an educational <laughs> um, opportunity for me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. Yeah, my mixtapes after that were like didn't even include any any hard rock or metal. It was all like the Soup Dragons and the KLF and sorry, sorry, buddy. Do we also need to just let people know who don't know about the other podcast? Yes, just a little bit about we do a '90s podcast called Dig Me Out '90s Rock. We've been doing it for over what a decade, fourteen years. Um, So we're gonna follow the format that we have for that but the focus is same kind of concept we're digging up lost and forgotten 90s bands sort of within the larger rock umbrella mm-hmm. so i do it every week dissecting what works what doesn't work and then give a final rating at the end so that's the format we're just gonna we're gonna take it and apply it to this 80s metal show and there might be an opportunity for a round table here or there we have a discussion about something um there might be an opportunity for an interview when I did the Power Ballad book, I spoke with a few people, Jeff Keith of Tesla. Um, uh, is it Eric Martin from mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Big, Big and a couple of the guys from Great White. So uh, hopefully we'll get to do some more interviews. Chip will obviously, he's our interview guru and he will hook us up with some excellent interviews for this podcast like he has for the 90s podcast. Uh, I did not so, get to interview bands back in the eighties because I was writing for the high school paper and there's no way I could interview Tesla. So it's going to be awesome to like 40, 35 years later, have a chance to go back and interview the bands that I've never interviewed <laughs> and finally have a reason to do it. Cause I haven't mm-hmm. had a reason to do it. So yeah, I'm ready. That's cool. Um, we haven't really talked about it, but the, the album that we're going to be discussing, which was voted yes. on by our patrons is the debut by Tesla. If you're watching the video, you're seeing it behind me. Uh, Mechanical Residence. This came out in 
Oh, Jay's got oh, it on vinyl. Me, oh my. Showing off inner sleeve. This is the first time I ever saw Nikola Tesla or ha- ever heard his name or had any idea who he was. 1986. Wait, 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 wait. Right? Hold on. Hold on. They didn't name themselves after the car company. <laughs> Apparently, wait not. a minute. What? Weird. I know. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, these guys guys got there first. Tell me about this, guys. Tell me about this record. Tell me about this band. We'll get in, I'm sure, into how we uh, were introduced to them, but uh, they started out in Sacramento, California, which I'm not really um, all that geographical, whatever the word I'm looking for, um, literate. Sacramento, I believe, is a little bit north, right? It's not the LA area. It's a little bit north, San Francisco, kind of, right? It's not sunset strip it's north i think right yep yep so so capital capital city too yeah so they started the band actually started with um guitarist frank hannon and bassist brian wheat and they had a band called city kid with two d's of course because right it's the 80s and you gotta spell (laughs) stuff a little bit differently Mm -hmm. um i did a little bit of research and they went through a few different members they had a woman singer actually uh oh as city kid and Apparently, they did pretty well in the Sacramento scene. I mean, they were a pretty popular local band. Uh, I don't really know kind of the transition, but the band started at 81. By 84, they had kind of solidified to where they are today. They got, so we got Brian Weed on bass, Frank Hannon on guitar. In 84, Jeff Keith joined on vocals. Uh, Tommy Skio, which is Skiach. Hot, Skiach. I don't know how to say his last name. I don't name. either. I just looked at it. I say Skio. Uh, joined on guitar and then they actually had a different drummer and before they went into the studio to record their first album they ended up uh, getting the guy that would be their permanent drummer up until a couple years ago Troy Lucetta now Tim it's funny you mentioned that you interviewed for your book Jeff Keith and Eric Martin Troy previous to Tesla was Eric Martin band's drummer oh yeah a little tribute there Um, they actually they, they remained they were called City Kid up until when they were recording. And I think somebody at the label or their manager or somebody was like, yeah, you, you should lose that name. It was Tom Zuzat. Okay. Oh, it was up. Did you learn that, that guy? Interview? Well, I've yeah, actually yeah. met him. Uh, I met him at a at an event at a Gibson guitar plant oh, nice. uh, many years ago. Uh, but he was the guy who I believe was in, instrumental in bringing Guns N' Roses to Geffen. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So they, they, they named themselves Tesla. Um, but, but um, my understanding is that they started recording as city kid and then when they got really serious and that's when they changed the name. Uh, now the other interesting thing, and we'll get into this when we start going through the tracks, but, um, uh, one of their biggest hits off this record is called little Susie. And this is something that I learned 10 years ago and I, I spend time on glam metal message boards and just, uh, hair metal Reddit sites and all this stuff. And it seems like at least once a year, if not more often, people find out that little Susie's actually a copper. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I can, okay. Yeah. We can talk I about that, a little that later, but I will tell you, I was trying to figure out why they recorded that song. And I learned that Ronnie Montrose of the band Montrose, uh, helped them record their demos before they got signed. And he's the one that brought the song to them. Hmm. Like I said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little more about the song later. Okay. Album came out in 86, I think December, December mm-hmm. 86 or December 85, December 86. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the eighties and even the early nineties, uh, December was a wasteland. Uh, you put stuff out and then all the major labels made all their money by selling greatest hits albums and live albums by their 
legacy artist. So I don't remember this album. I, I, I do remember coming out because also back in those days, uh, you know, that the album was preceded by a video and modern day cowboy was the first video. And so that's kind of introduced them to the world. I, so that's how I got introduced to him. But, um, but they spent, I believe they spent almost two years on the road after the album came out. They did not release their second album until 89. So this album came out tail of in 86. They had singles on the singles that were released in 86, 87 and 88. So a long, wow. long, long run for this, for this first record. And they were out with Def Leppard, right? They, they toured they tour with, that was the first time I saw them. Yeah. That was, yep. Yep. that was the earliest tour I saw them in the very first, the very first thing I ever wrote was for my high school paper. And I was visiting my dad in Florida and in Florida at the time you could get a temp license when you were 15 or 15 and a half. And we sort of, um, lied to the DMV. And we said that I lived there during the summer and I lived in Ohio for school. Uh, I, I did not live in Florida, but we convinced the DMV that I did. And so I was able to get my, my license and my dad let me borrow his car and I drove to see Def Leppard and Tesla opened. That was my first, yeah. my, my first, um, time seeing them live. So. Yeah. I've re- that would have been the hysteria tour, which went on forever. And I think they yes. opened up a lot of those dates. So yes, a lot of people got to see Tesla or get, yeah. get exposed to them in the late eighties. Yeah, so I think that that kind of gets us to uh, to the record. All right, and I when did you um, you found it, or how did you find the band, and um, when did you get it? Yeah, definitely, definitely MTV. Um, yeah, you know, b- before as we were kicking around recording this podcast, even you know a couple of weeks ago, talking about what we wanted to do. 86 was even a little bit, 86 was a little bit early for even the hair metal stuff. I mean, Motley Crue, like the big bands were starting to come out, but like the, 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 the bands most associated with the glam metal sunset strip didn't, didn't really start emerging till late 87, 88, 89, 90. Mm-hmm. So these guys were actually a little bit early. I'm sure I was watching Headbangers Ball or MTV. I don't even know if Headbangers Ball was on in 86, but I definitely saw the modern day cowboy video. And, um, uh, my mom's bank account will tell you that, uh, pretty much anything I saw at the time, I had to buy the cassette. So I'm pretty sure I bought it right when it came out. Although I will tell you that um, the word Tesla was foreign to me as a yeah, me too. 15, 15 year old. And I know yeah. for, for the first month, two months, three months, I, I, I kept calling them Telsa. Yeah. Uh, just because it, that for some reason that sounded more natural to me, they were right. Telsa, not Tesla. So uh, my brain would always see Tulsa. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, when I was first. <laughs> first reading about the band. So I got exposed to the band through, I think magazines. I remember reading, um, it would have been maybe metal edge or hip Raider, but they were f- always framed as the like anti-glam band, which yeah. is so oh, interesting. And one of the, one of the things I went back to when we were, you know, debating what to call this podcast, because, you know, this is a band known for the, this era yet at the time they were sort of anti-glam. They were the, you know, they wore like jeans and denim shirts and flannels and t-shirts and stuff. They didn't, I think their hair was poofy, but like they didn't wear pink and they didn't look like poison. No, and they were I, very much marketed that way. Like every article about them I remember reading was all like, they're different. They're about the music. They're not about the image, you know? So I kept reading about them and reading about them. And I'm pretty sure, you know, my memory is a little fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure I bought the cassette without ever hearing them. 
just based on the articles that I kept reading, I was like, I guess I got to check this band out because I just keep reading about how amazing they are. And then shortly after buying the cassette, then I saw the started seeing the videos and uh, on Headbangers Ball and stuff. So I'm pretty sure I bought this record without ever hearing them. Now I know, I know, um, I, I, I read the same, uh, not the same. I, I did read an interview with Brian Wheat, the bassist, and, and he said exactly what you said, Jay. He said, we were really the everyman band. We were mm-hmm. the nameless, faceless. We were there to rock and we, we didn't care if people kind of knew who our names, what our names were. Cause that wasn't what was important. It was the music that was important. So when did you first hear, hear of Tesla, Tim? I can tell you. Uh, it was winter of 1990 when Signs was the big single. Okay. Yeah. And that was all over the place. It was on MTV. I remember that. And it was on the radio. And it was before, obviously, you know, grunge broke. So there was all this stuff that was happening on on MTV that was kind of all over the place. And, um, you know, I had seen the videos for various bands, but that was the first time I remember going oh this is interesting i didn't know it was a cover when i heard it i just thought it was i was like oh this Mm -hmm. band's doing an acoustic song okay uh and then i'm familiar with the singles off of most of the albums like i know off of uh the great radio controversy obviously love song because it's a power ballad Um, and i know uh no way out heaven's trail and then i think it's on what's what is the album that has edison's medicine i know that song psychotic Psychotic supper yeah and that that comes out after five man acoustical jam right yeah yeah so i just i know the singles i might there i might have heard them hanging around with you to be honest yeah yeah. sure Uh, so but other than that this is the first time i've actually gone through an entire record of theirs cool so I you did. Know, I'm trying to think amongst my friend group. Like, I don't know that they were a popular band amongst my friends. I think my friends were more into whatever the um, the White Snakes and the Aerosmiths and more of the, mm-hmm. the stuff that you'd hear on the regular radio stations. Like, I not not that it was like I was cool because I was into Tesla. I think just people just didn't know who they were. Yep. Yeah, they seemed to like under the radar. I, like yeah. Jay said, um, it wasn't until Signs that they really like became yeah known at another level. I think even up until that point, it was still like other musicians like them or if you were really into this type of music you would find them and then probably get into them but they were definitely buried i know there's i I know there's books about this stuff you guys have probably talked about it like the it was an interesting time i it probably still happens today but especially like in the 80s a lot of these bands i mean they did their time as city kid playing in sacramento but like they didn't really do the tesla minor league getting called up to the majors. Like they put out their record and they were touring arenas for a year with Def Leppard. Like they weren't playing the 2000 seaters or the 500 small clubs. Like they, they got tossed onto a big stage immediately once they were signed, the record came out, which is, uh, you know, a lot of bands don't do that these days. They sort of work their way. Well, even the, uh, the Tom Zutant, um, formula, if you take guns and roses, like even they had a pretty lengthy period where he was slowly developing them and they were still playing clubs and like they didn't go out and do some big opening tour with some major band they sort of like worked their way up slowly over the course of a year or two and then exploded seemingly out of nowhere but if you would go back and look at the history there was there was quite a lot of work done to kind of get them to that point so yeah it's pretty unique that they right out of the gate got the deal changed the name and 
boom, we're out on the road with, yep. with Def Leppard. That's crazy. And unlike a lot of other bands we're going to be talking about, they've actually maintained a pretty small list of members. Like the core mm. members have kind of stuck around for most of the time, as opposed to say your, you know, your rats or your skid rows or yeah. <laughs> what have you. Yeah. Uh, it's basically been Jeff Keith and Frank Hannon and Brian Wheat the whole time. And then uh, Tommy left because of, I guess he had some issues and yeah. was replaced sometime in the two thousands. And then the drummer just, I think you mentioned just recently um, stepped away. Yeah. And they, and it looked like uh, Phil Collin who was in or is in let Def Leppard actually played with them one time uh at a he produced an award their, show he produced their last record so they became very close with def leppard they wrote a song about steve clark on a psychotic supper or, or i'm sorry uh bust a nut and uh yeah i went on to work with phil collin and you know i think we're jumping ahead a little bit but i would say like they were not the kind of band that should name a record bust a nut right like they they weren't <laughs> right they, they, i mean they weren't one of those like funny gimmicky band yeah, to yeah. name an album like that slightly slightly tarnishes a little bit you know what i mean it, it just it it was out of character for them i think like kingdom yeah. come in your face yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> that's one that i'd always remember well let, starting with this record as we get into it just to set the context a little bit more and, and to sort of lead to that change they had this really cool like theme they start on this record like once they change the band name like mechanical resonance is a tesla term they started yeah. putting the term note machines inside the album cover. The artwork sleeve I'm sharing here has images of Nikola Tesla. The second album is about his, you know, involvement in developing inventing the radio. And they wrote songs about him. The third record has songs about him. Like what if the, what if they kept what what if they had not changed your name? Right? Like what would they have been right, writing about? Right, 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 right. <laughs> or more importantly, where's the musical about Tesla that they write? <laughs> yeah. But they they taught me about who Nikola Tesla was. Yeah, straight yeah. up, like I didn't know anything about the guy. I I became aware of him and learned the initial stories about who he was through their music and interviews with them, which is kind of a cool thing. Like if you think about it, like, and it also like, you know, in the way that Iron Maiden writes about history and stuff, it gives you this timeless stuff that you can write lyrics about that, you know, hold, tends to hold up fairly well. Um, so I. Starting with this record, they go on to kind of keep that theme for a while, and then they eventually don't hold on to it as obviously. Once you get to Boston, they don't hold on to it as much. But uh, it's kind of a cool. I, I always like the packaging and the concepts. Yeah. So, do you guys want to talk about the record? Yeah. Let's do it. That's what we're here for. Why don't you guys kick it off? Uh, Jay, do you want to start? Yeah, I can go first. What um, works? What works? I think what I realized now obviously i've listened to this record a billion times what i realized revisiting it now with some space and different different focus just how dynamic the band is and it it starts with the rhythm section which it's so it's I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this tim but revisiting it it was so weird to me to to think like they decided to start their debut album with bass and drums in an era of like blazing guitars and like big front front people and voices it starts with a drum and bass groove now the guitars come in but they're mm -hmm. coming in in context of like 
setting this kind of mood using the rhythm section and then the guitars start to like play off of that and build but it gives you a sense of like for the rest of the record like how well these things these songs are put together how rhythmic they are how the guitars are playing off of um the drums and bass as much as you know a lot of the i think bands we're going to talk about you know may tend to be more guitar forward in terms of like you write the riff and then everybody else plays to that these feel like the band wrote really worked out the songs and then they kind of deconstructed how they bring them in and then where they would go so there's just this i think tight dynamic through the whole record of um really confident locked up rhythm parts and then the guitars can do this cool stuff where like on the first track where when they come in big they're really on the backbeat a lot you know they'll just kind of like hit these big power chords on the backbeat and then they'll do some crazy like lead part that jumps on top and then they can lay back again it just creates this cool like confident rhythm throughout the whole record where you know that they pull you in with the rhythm and then do something dynamic with the guitars and then obviously jeff keith's singing is you know pretty spectacular at times so you just got all of this stuff going on that really complements each other really well you know they can pick up the tempo and um, coming at you live almost sounds like a motorhead style bass um and rhythm part but still like the guitars are like not thrashy they're just kind of like in the pocket do some interesting lead or um maybe some riffs here and there but like it's not a guitar only record it's not like a guitar first everybody else follows which i think is really cool um it also has this there's there's some kind of atmosphere to it i think some of it is like how the songs like tend to have intros that build and set a scene and kind of you know take you somewhere um, getting better is a good day or a good example modern cowboy is a good example before my eyes is a good example um they use synths quite a bit to kind of create some like underneath like atmosphere and like suspense which is kind of interesting too which i don't think they do a whole lot on any of their other records so you, again they, they just let things kind of like develop and often they have these surprising twists and turns in them that you don't know or wouldn't expect you know I, I think that's one of the things that as i reflect on it the songs that i really like the most uh tend to be like that so cover queen is a good example where that song starts off guitar forward with this pretty heavy riff like you think like oh this is gonna be like a thrash song or something like this is a pretty ripping guitar riff and then it turns into like a funk groove you're know, like okay this is cool like not where i was expecting it to go but by the end 
it's like this raucous jam um changes is another good example like you come out of modern day cowboy which is you know pretty intense by the end of that song and changes starts off with like this jazzy piano thing and it's like sets this atmosphere of like this more intimate space and then that evolves into this kind of ominous sounding track that then you're head bobbing by the chorus so i just really think revisiting it love those songs that they don't the way that they're putting the songs together and the dynamics that they're using they don't sound like anybody else um both in the structure of the song the tone of the songs but also i think ultimately for a lot of these bands and for this band it comes down to the singer and i don't think Jeff Keith has a great, he has a great voice. He has a lot of range, but he's also unique. Like I, I don't, when I hear him sing, like I, I don't hear a lot of other singers. Now that's not to say like it's unusual. It's just like, there's a tone to his voice and a delivery that is unique, which was super important to this, at that time. It's still important now, but I think that's the dynamics of the band. And then you put his voice over top and you, you have something that is pretty unique and I don't think anybody else really sounded like at the time and has sounded like since. What uh, what worked for you, Chip? So I'm going to piggyback off some of the stuff you said. Um, I listened to this record a million times. I, I was trying to look up while you were talking, and maybe you can tell me since you have the record. Modern Day Cowboy, does that kick off side two or is it it's on side two? Because I had the cassette. It kicks off side two. Okay. That's what I thought. So yep. back in those days, right? Like in the 80s when I was buying cassettes, um, I actually had a, had a, had a college roommate who used to, you know, he had his theory that track three and track seven were the two, like, like that's where the labels put the songs that were going to be the singles yep. one in the middle of side one and one in the middle of side two, so that you would listen to both sides with modern day cowboy being that first single off the record. I am positive when I bought the cassette, the first thing I did is put it in and hit on the side two and hit rewind and started with modern day cowboys the first song <laughs> yeah and so so like i said i listened yep. to it a million times i when i went back to like really kind of listen to it for this a lot of the records from that time period i didn't make it deep into side two this record side two was as familiar as side one like i'm like oh mm-hmm. i know these songs like these aren't like this is not the first time i've heard these songs uh mm-hmm. which is you know again back in those days it was a little bit rare to to do that um i th- you know, I I think that because this was pre arena Motley Crue, pre arena Poison, that there was no template and there was no following the leader. And so right. I think you're right. I think I, they didn't. I think they were a collection of their influences. And they, you know, if they started the band in '81, they were influenced by bands from the '70s, right? So, uh, you know, Aerosmith. I hear. In retrospect, and knowing that they toured with Def Leppard, and knowing that Phil Collins worked with them, I hear some like some pre-pyromania, just sort of that like new wave of British metal kind of guitar mm-hmm. work. It's not like it's not overbearing, but it's definitely not like glam metal guitar riffs. It's definitely got mm-hmm. that like that sound. Getting better, like you said, a lot of the songs start off and then they sort of change. I mean, getting better almost almost sounds like Simple Man by Leonard Skinner, right? It's like this. It's almost like this Southern rock thing. Get better. 
we're no good together. I would, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a blueprint for some of the Black Prose stuff. Um, changes to me, the beginning piano part almost sounds like they predated November Rain by a few years. Um, mm-hmm. There's some, some even so, and this is a good point to talk about Little Susie, right? So even Little Susie was a new wave hit by a British band. And it was actually the fifth video ever played on MTV in 1981. Oh my gosh. It's weird though. Cause if you listen to it, it doesn't like it's, it's a non rock version of that song, but like it's, they, they stayed true to it, but they added the rock part to it. But again, mm-hmm. they, they opened that song differently than the, the, the band was called PhD and it was the, the, the initials of the last names of the three members or something like that was where PhD came from. But the mm-hmm. beginning of little Susie almost is Zeppelin ish. Like they were, to mm-hmm. me, they were, they were like, they had a sound, a really mature sound that should have been their fourth record, but they sounded like that on their first record. They sounded like a classic rock band on the first record. Yeah. And there were like, like you said, like the guitars were not up in the front, but, but again, like there's some, uh, let's see which song I said it, I wrote down. I caught a little Van Halen even on some of the, even like coming at you live at the very beginning, yeah. like a lot of fast yeah. playing to lead into it. Um, very eruption like. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but, but like those guys weren't necessarily in magazines being called guitar heroes. They were, ju- they were just really good, but mm-hmm. it goes back to nameless, faceless. They're just there to, to rock. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a high level overview of kind of what I thought. Like it, it's funny. I read, so I, again, doing a little bit of research, the writer for Rolling Stone who reviewed it did not like it. And in fact, wow. he said, yep. he, he made some comment along the lines of like, the songs all kind of sound the same. There's not a lot of diversity. And if they don't start changing things up, they're not going to last very long. Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay. what was, what was, was this guy listening to a different album than I was? Because I think there's right. a lot of diversity. There's, <laughs> right. I, uh, you know, well, we'll get to what doesn't work. And, and I do have like one very minuscule thing to p- talk about and it's actually something you talked about jay but i'll i'll save that yep. so let's uh let's get uh the new the new kid on the blocks yeah uh, impression of the record the what suburban think, kid Tim? not the city kid yeah. uh <laughs> so i came into this not having listened to this whole record really i only had listened to modern day cowboy little Susie. i feel like i had heard changes but i don't know how i would have heard it um opening this record i thought i had put on we care a lot by faith no more like that drum and bass part <laughs> yeah and he, he even like does like a little like mm-hmm. i was completely caught off guard when it started which bode well for, for this record because song to song, I think what works really well is there's a, uh, I can't believe this person said it. There was samey because it's so different from song to song. And what I think, uh, you know, I'm thinking in terms of vinyl, like you mentioned, so modern day cowboy that starts the second side, like right. the first three songs on each side are just killer tracks, which is really interesting. I mean, you would think modern day cowboy would be like, the second or third song on the album. The fact that they put it on the second side is wild to me. Um, yeah. But 
you know, I had read that they were a cover band when they were starting out. And I definitely hear in them tinges of different bands like people have mentioned. Like when you would with getting better, you mentioned Simple Man by Leonard Scared. To me, that kind of sounded it kind of had a Boston-esque feel to it. Uh I could hear that in a on a Boston album track. Um, Too Late for Love had a very Def Leopard vibe mm-hmm. to it. And it just caught me off guard about how much diversity there was. Cause I'm th- again, I'm thinking like, okay, eighties metal, there's, you know, there's, you're going to have your big hit single. You're going to have your, your, your power ballad at some point, but this is kind of before that. So this is really just a rock band putting together a rock album. And I think it sounds uh, a n- different enough that you could play this for someone who is not into hair bands, not into glam metal. And it, this kind of comes off as a little more straightforward. Like I was hearing stuff that reminded me of like free and bad company at times. Yes, for sure. Um, that is a, you know, much more seventies rock. Obviously. I mean, I've read that they were influenced by Led Zeppelin and I can definitely hear that. Obviously there's a Van Halen influence too, with like coming at you live. That's the beginning of that's eruption or mean street, you know, at the yeah. beginning, but cover queen also has some stuff that like reminded me of Van Halen, not in the funky part you mentioned, but there's like a part in the middle where he uses a talk box and it's it, like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Uh, very much uh, Van Halen asking like this, just crazy little turns that happen that you're not expecting. Um, Jeff Keith is just, I just really like his voice. It's got, he can, he can hit, you know, a a sort of a a high end and then also sing like on changes with a very, you know, um, a, a deeper voice. He also just writes some fun lyrics. Now, (laughs) <laughs> we were talking about i'm going to go back to the other dig me out fountains of wayne using pop culture references and then being dated yeah and i want to point out that in modern day cowboy he and there, like i think it's the third verse he goes the usa the ussr and i'm trying to mm-hmm. imagine a 20 year old listening to this song going what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> that that line still gives me uh goosebumps it's, it's like the way he delivers it and yeah. just like the conviction and like the dynamic of it. I was like, I want to run through a wall. <laughs> yeah, it's so <laughs> big and dramatic. It's also an interesting topic to discuss. I mean, he's talking about mm. this mentality of violence and guns and both on a personal level, but then on a global level, which is not what I expect from a band, quote unquote, a glam metal band or glam rock band. And, and I thought they, pr- they probably were all like in their early 20s too, right? I mean, right. Yeah. But this is the height of Reagan, you know, uh, USSR, Cold War type stuff there's i mean the punks were talking about it genesis was writing it i mean everybody had it had some sort of mm-hmm. input on this so it makes sense but i just i don't remember ever hearing a band like this sing about stuff like that maybe scorpions or you know obviously you mentioned like iron maiden would sing about you know two minutes to midnight is a is a classic example of a nuclear war song yes yep 
but to hear it in this context was it's really interesting um frank hannon is such a good guitar player he covers so much ground obviously he's got the skill and tech of the technique of of eddie van halen with the finger tapping and that stuff he's able to do really bluesy stuff and make it sound legitimate not just like you know bends and and running a scale or something like that but he's just got a, a really really smooth hand and him and i don't i, I don't know I, I can't say i know every part he's playing because i know that tommy's playing some of the other stuff i don't know if tommy's more the rhythm player or if they were just trading off leads the dynamic between them was tommy skio was more bringing the old school metal stuff so when you hear the thrashier like a classic metal sound maybe even the finger tapping is probably going to be tommy skio and then frank hannon is going to be like the bluesier experimental like kind of more traditional like sg style you know guitar player uh i think solo wise like some of his solos are really interesting on this record and that he'll just kind of like let him be noisy and like use weird effects and stuff that not a lot of guitar players were doing at this time it was more of a 70s style guitar playing that he brought so it's a it's a cool juxtaposition if you like really you know kind of they keep the i think they keep the guitars pretty well panned throughout the record so frank's mm-hmm. on your right and tommy's is on your left and you start to like get the dynamic of the two and why it works so well you know he sort of had this like 70s rock meets 80s thrash guitar player like in the same band and like create a little bit of magic with how the guitar parts came together i think the fact that maybe they weren't a sunset sunset strip band they were a sacramento band probably is the best thing that could have happened to them because I don't feel like there's a lot of cliche on this record. Like there may be some stuff that's a little bit weaker, mm-hmm. but I don't, there's nothing on here that makes me go, oh, that's dumb. Like that's just, that's just dumb. Even the stuff that's clearly meant to be a single or, 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 or meant to be a crowd song for when you're playing live. Yeah. Yep. It yep. doesn't feel like it's pandering. Like this, this feels when you're listening to it, like a band that, all the players are really good. I mean, the, like you mentioned, the fact that you open the, the album with bass and drums on what's supposed to be a guitar really centric album is showing you that like, no, this is this is a whole band. This is not we're not mm-hmm. just showing off an amazing guitar player. Um, and in some ways, it re, it's almost like a um, uh, an, uh, it's this is more of an offspring of Van Halen than maybe some people would realize because of that because when i look at like um, a lot of van halen um it isn't about hair and flashy pants and you know that kind mm-hmm. of stuff like it's about the playing yep. and that's that's what rem- that's what a lot of this reminded me so it was fun you, to, you, to go through this and listen to the whole record yeah if you really know van halen that's kind of what you start to realize it's like oh these are brothers who like deeply know each other and how to play music together i, right. I think the i wanted to build on the chip you touched on it initially uh timmy i think you talked about too is just the this is coming out at a period where some of the formulas were not quite as rock solid yet so like there's not a true power ballad on here right we're no good together is more just like a blues ballad mm-hmm. you know outstanding vocal performance but it's not a power ballad right and you know the starting the song on a bass and drum group are starting the album on a bass and drum groove like that's very unconventional 
putting your most dramatic rocker as the opener on side two. Like, I think if this record comes out and a couple of years later, when the formulas are more in place, where it's like, no, you got to have your big, you know, cookie single on as, you know, track three, and you got to start with a, you know, a big arena, you know, anthemic opener to start the record. And you got to have a power about like all of that stuff, you know, would have changed this record. And I think, yeah. uh, in hindsight, I'm able to appreciate the sequencing and the statement it's making more now than I think I did at the time. Um, you know, at the time I was like, Oh, that's a weird song to start with. Like kind of want to skip ahead to modern day cowboy, <laughs> but now I get it. It's like them saying, no, we're a band and like buckle in. It's going to be a ride. We got a lot of stuff to say. We're going to, we're going to take you to a bunch of different places. Let me just, I pulled up the Rolling Stone review. I'm, I'm going to cherry pick a couple of lines. So it's not the whole review, but um, this is guitar based hard rock of the most predictable sort distinguished only by a better than average melodic sensibility. There's some reference fast and flashy. It's perfect post Van Halen ear candy offering little content, but plenty of excitement. Um, unfortunately, like many bands fresh from the bar circuit, Tesla seems wedded to the sort of mannerisms demanded of cover bands. Thus, Stephen, or thus Jeff Keith dusting off his Paul Rogers impress, impression on Little Susie, while the ballad We're No Good Together does a, a decent Steve Marriott. Now, the way he ends the review is, but unless a band can squeeze something distinctive out of its sound, Tesla is unlikely to offer more than a brief spark, spark of excitement before fading away entirely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand uh, do, do you even like music right Rolling Stone. i the right the writer's a recognizable name i i want to go back and kind of uh kind of get a bigger picture Point. of who he was and what he was listening to in 86 because you know it right. might not it might not have been his style of music and he might right. have been the wrong person assigned to it yeah they weren't really a rolling stone band i guess right and maybe, it, I, maybe more of a spin band and and you mentioned about not really having the formula down, even when they did write a power ballad with love song on the next record, yeah. they wrote that huge acoustic intro that mm -hmm. goes in like, so they even like didn't follow the formula they were right. supposed to follow for that. Cause I, I, I remember in college, like 10 people trying to figure out like how to play that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like everybody would have their bad version of that intro. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it was an acoustic guitar song and uh yeah it's not easy it sounds like it's easy but it's not when you, you have to start moving your fingers around um so let me ask you guys uh you've listened you've both said you listened to this a million times yeah in those million times and in revisiting it now is there anything that doesn't work well i'll go back to when i first got the cassette you know first time ever hearing the band popping it in i liked the sound of the band it took me a while. It, it's not, it's not overly hooky. I think there's some, it's very melodic. Mm -hmm. It's just not like that punchy in the face chorus where you're like, oh man, I'm just going to remember that all day. Um, they're, they're not all over the record. There's moments here and there and it takes some patience, which, you know, buying a cassette in 1986 or seven or whatever it was, you know, you, ha I had the patience, you know, I bought it with my own money mowing lawns so like it was the only thing i listened to for probably you know six months <laughs> so you know i can i get that you know if you're looking for big hits that hit you over the head and, and pull you in right away 
you're not going to get that. You got to like give it a little time. The other thing I think now though, that maybe doesn't work is, I mean, some of the lyrics are, you have to just forgive them, I guess, and not be in for every lyric on the record. Like mm-hmm. rock me to the top is not the most brilliant creative lyric that's ever been written. Um, that said, the song still kicks ass. Like it's still like a fist pounder, like Tommy Skio, you know, great riff, fun song. If you analyze the lyrics on on it, not so great. Um, and not even from like a awkward innuendo way. It's just like pretty bass lyrics that just repeat. Um, and there's a I don't I've struggled with Little Susie. Like I, it is hooky, probably the hookiest thing on the record. Um, but it always felt just a little too long, long and like a little too bright. Like I like, I like them when they're doing something like getting better. I love that. Like even the message in that song where it's like, got this dark and light, there's some optimism to it. It's like, Mm -hmm. Hey, things are tough. You know, blue collar guy working hard, but you know what? If I just keep doing, doing my thing and like stay positive, things are going to work out. Like, I like that message. I mean, think about like some of the blue collar songs that are out now and like how different that message is now. The message is now like, none of it's, everything sucks. None of it's my fault. I'm blaming somebody else. Like, so I like them in that mode of like, you know, sort of that feel good blue collar anthem works well. Little Susie is just a little too cute for me. Um, It works on this record. It's not, you know, I'm not going to, but it's probably if I'm going to skip a song, it's probably going to be that or Love Me is the other one that just feels a little bit vanilla compared to some of the other material, especially I love how the record ends. I think Cover Queen and Before My Eyes are just great, complex, very cool songs. So I'm a little antsy to get through Little Susie and Love Me to get to the to the end of the record because I like those songs so much. So that's some of the stuff that didn't work for me. Anything for you, Chip, either at the time or now as you go back and, and listen to it that don't doesn't quite hit you right? Yeah, I would say it's going back and listening to it. And again, it's just such a, a small thing. And actually, both of you mentioned, I think, the fact that you, I don't know that you said that you liked it, but when I when I put this on, and again, I've listened to it a million times, but listening to it with knowing that I was going to talk about it, the intro, the very first, the bass that you were talking about, mm-hmm. like the funkiness, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't Tesla. Like this is extreme or faith <laughs> right. no more, right? Like that's felt really weird to me and out of place. And like, if I could have cut the first 10 seconds off that song, I probably would have liked it better. But but again, mm-hmm. like, I, I mean, I've listened to it so many times and I never really thought about it until this week. And Jay, I am uh, like, I wrote down the same, uh, exactly what you said. Like if there was, uh, I, so, so Little Susie to me, uh, that was a single, right? And so like, in 85, 86, when 86 or 87, when the single came out, 86, when I first heard it, I mean, I was, I, I was watching MTV every day for eight hours a day. Right. So little Susie didn't bother me. Like it was, a uh, it was an introduction to a new song. It, it's interesting that, um, kind of the way you feel about it, knowing that it's a cover, like maybe it was a, you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea to put a cover, even if they Teslified it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I certainly if I hear it even today on a classic rock station, I don't turn it. I like it. Um, but I'm the same way. Love me. I was like, I, I, I don't dislike the song. Love me. But if I had to shorten that record by one cut, it would be that cut. Yeah. And and there's nothing really wrong with it. I just, I, to, mm-hmm. to your point, the last two songs are just so mature for a young band and just so 
yeah, they're they're so, they definitely set that like a tone and a feeling that is mm-hmm. a little dark, a little. Um, I mean, I I wrote down for Cover Queen. I wrote, "Come on, who put such a great song so deep into an album?" Right, like the guitars are dark, and if it, 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 like there's even like the smallest, smallest bit of like sleaze rock on that song. Um, mm-hmm. Which one? But uh, Cover Queen. Queen. Cover Queen. Okay. Uh, but 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 not like not not really. But if you were to lump them into the hair metal scene and you want to call it a little bit of its sleeves rock, like that might be just a little bit. And then before my eyes, slow plotting, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like great white, a little bit, kind of that bluesy kind of just I got like a Dio mm-hmm. feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some darkness in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but uh, other than that, I mean, like I have very little complaints about this record. I, I found it. I found it re-listening to it this week very recognizable, like very familiar. Like like no time has passed since I last heard it, although it's probably been a little a little bit of time. Um yeah, yeah, I have very little to complain about it. All right, Tim. You're new to it. Uh something didn't work. I mean, obviously it wasn't all perfect here. Well, I agree with you when you said that this is a melodic album, but it's not necessarily a hooky album. Yeah. Like I remember like, okay, that's the chorus of getting better. Cause the song is called getting better and rock me to the top is a pretty blatant. Like yeah. I said, you know, that's when you want to play in concert and everybody's going to yell rock you know, <laughs> right. and, the, and the lights are going to flash that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily think that every song on here is something that you are going to like hum along to. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like with love song or um even heaven's trail is is a little Mm -hmm. bit more hooky than these Mm -hmm. um that said uh, like rock me to the top is like a little too basic for me like i feel like that's almost below them yeah Yeah. uh i think the little Susie intro goes on too long um it's you know it's a five minute song and if when you cut that out it's only like three something and or if you separate it as a separate track uh they do the intro, the acoustic intro better on love song it, for, for doing that acoustic intro. So yeah. I, there's a couple spots like that where I was just like, yeah, this is a little bit indulgent. Um, you know, I, I respect the coming at you live <laughs> intro. That makes sense. I mean, it's a Van Halen esque song. So I, you know, if you're going to throw that in there, that's fine. You know what I'm realizing now that you're saying that, that's how Van Halen one starts. Yeah. Van Halen one starts with the bass, boom, 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 like slow burn brings you into the record. <laughs> dun, dun. Track two is yep. eruption. eruption. That's where they got that from. I bet. Yep. Yeah, it follows that pattern. Yep. And I agree with you. Some of the yeah. lyrics don't stand up to modern uh criticism, but I let that go. Uh, but some are some are really strong, I think. Oh, like, yeah. Surprisingly strong. Like it's they're inconsistent there's there's moments where like wow that's that's really holds up and pretty clever and i like that sentiment and there's other ones where you're like mm, kind of mailing it in there right yeah and i don't think that this suffers from terribly from like 80s production i mean the drums are have some reverb on them and it's but it's not terrible like you can't yeah, listen to yeah. this and it's not overwhelming um the guys who produced this i guess they had a really hard time finding producers for this record, like everybody passed on working with them, like Rick Rubin and Mutt Lang, and they went to everybody and nobody wanted oh, wow. to work with them. They ended up getting guys who were like dance producers. They had produced a rock band, which is interesting because 
Wow. The production sounds pretty good. Like, I mean, they, yeah, that's a good call out. I didn't even think about it. I mean, which is a good sign. Like if you're listening to a record from the mid eighties and you don't think about, you know, how it sounds, that's probably a good sign that it's, you know, it's pretty clean, straightforward production. I mean, they do have a, so this was a, I don't, I'm assuming they continue to do this, but they would always print inside the liner notes. I mean, you see it, it says no machines mm-hmm. under the bottom of the liner notes. They would always put that as like a, but they use a synth- synthesizer on this. That's I a guess, machine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like in terms of the material, the first three songs on each side are the strongest songs. Uh, easy come, easy go, coming at you live, getting better. And then modern day cowboy changes and little Susie minus that intro. Not that the rest of the stuff is weak. It's just, those are really the, like the most memorable tracks. And it's a lot of diversity too. Like changes is pretty epic, uh, compared to, you know, coming at you live, which is a pretty more, much more straightforward in terms of its overall, uh, arrangement. So. I don't have a, I honestly don't have a ton of issues with this because it's, there's nothing on here that makes me go, oh, that's really dumb. Like there's no poison esque, you know, unskinny bop or, you know, like something like that where you go, yeah, oh, yeah, this is yeah. so bad. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah. does not stand the test of time. Like this, this to me, if some, if you met a kid and he was into Greta Van Fleet, like you could probably give them this record and be like, well, this is not far off from that. You might dig right. this record. Mm hmm. You know, just a side note. I think they, I think as part of that lengthy two, two and a half year tour, I think they did, I think they did open for Poison. I think, and I'm pretty sure I saw that tour at Richfield Coliseum. I think, I think they also opened for David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, the Def Leppard thing was huge for them, but they, they did. I'm trying to see if I can find the other bands they toured with on that tour: Def Leppard and Poison, uh, David Lee Roth, and Alice Cooper. And those all sort of make sense. Poison doesn't make a ton of sense. I guess David Lee, yeah. David Lee Roth because of the Van Halen stuff. But um, yeah. Yeah. Dave was super glam at that time. Yeah. He was, he was as glam as Poison was. Well, and he was doing like Cab Calloway songs and. Right. <laughs> you know. uh, and, and the grand scheme of things, too, I think, you know, just going back to the theme of the show, this this feels like, you know, the, their lost and forgotten album. Um, if you consider the grand scheme of things, like most people know them from Signs and Love Song, which come after this. This is before they get big. There's not a bunch of like, you know, radio singles on this record. You know, this feels like the one that probably is underappreciated of the early catalog and, um, you know, most worthy of digging out to me. It's it's pretty impressive. This is a debut. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty um mature like you mentioned it like there's some really mature like before my eyes is a very mature sounding song changes they're getting better like even though that's not necessarily like an incredibly difficult song but just the message of that song is a mature Mm -hmm. message for guys who are in like their 20s right uh but i think i i remember that you're talking to jeff keith that he was literally like working in construction so like he had that background of like, you know, a very hands-on uh blue collar ethic. It's in the liner notes, the the story of the formation of the bands there and climbing out of the cockpit of a giant mountain cement truck came Jeff Keith, who'd become quite a good singer, humming along to the radio in his rig. Yep. It's like it, it's it's you know embedded in the 
in the liner notes forever. Well, what do we do now? We rate, we so rate, we rate the record. Well, maybe <laughs> um, you know something that I that I'm always interested. I'm 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 a in addition to dig me out music. I I love going down rabbit holes and and um, Tesla's not too. You don't have to dig too far. Just find out what they're yeah. up to today. But um, you know, you mentioned that 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 three of them are still together. Um, Tommy has been working with a band called Bad Marriage. Bad Marriage is a band who is definitely influenced by bands like Tesla and Aerosmith. They have like, they, they, they have, they have not big hair, but they have the hair and the, and the look of an eighties hard rock band. Um, and at, at times on the bad marriage record, you can hear like LA guns or warrant, but they definitely harken back to the more classic sounding stuff. Um, they, they were, uh, the guitar player. So I interviewed them last year and they, um, they're from Boston and they try to get on every bill that comes to town and they ended up getting on a Tesla bill and becoming friends with Brian Wheat and Brian Wheat produced the record and Brian got Jeff to sing some background vocals and Tommy is now a permanent member in Bad Marriage. So, um, you know, Tommy's not in the band and I have no idea what the relationship is like, but they're all still part of a a family of some sort, Hmm. you know, um, but I did look up kind of set list you know, they're at a point now they're, they're, a, they're a legacy band. Right. And so they're basically including four songs from, from this album, basically like four songs from every record. Mm. Um, they still tour quite a bit. They've got a big tour coming up this year. Uh, I heard an interview with Jeff Keith maybe last year. And I think they put out a new single last year and they were kind of like, we don't know if we're ever going to put out a full record. Cause it's hard to get guys together. We don't have the time. And, no one's going to buy it. They want to hear our, our old stuff. Right. And so, uh, that we might never see another full length Tesla, Tesla record, but, um, they definitely are a band that goes out and plays the hits. And, you know, I saw them and I've seen them twice in the last 15 years. And I remember watching them thinking like, they're a band that when they play in Columbus, uh, they play at the Newport music hall, which holds, I think 1800 and that, that Kemba live indoors, which holds 3000, um, they sell those places out. So they, they haven't gone through that period where it's like, you know, they're playing in front of 500 people. They're playing the, the, the strip mall rock clubs. Like they, they, for all intents and purposes are a classic rock band. Like they are a bad company of right. our generation. They're not an arena headliner, but they're like a solid sellout of a 3000 seat theater on every show, which, which is pretty awesome to maintain yeah. for, for 35, 40 years. Yeah, for sure. It's a, they've got a dedicated fan base. They've built it the right way. And unfortunately, uh, if you search for them on streaming services now, there are literally cur- currently 13 other artists named Tesla. I, you know, Tim, <laughs> though, I, you said it. I, I interviewed Dirty Honey four or five years ago, uh, something like that. And Dirty Honey's kind of got that classic rock sound without sounding like hair metal. And, um, those guys will will definitely tell you that they were not influenced by the big hair metal. Like they they, I don't want to say they took offense when I mentioned that, but I was kind of like, not that you guys sound like a hair metal band, but like the nineteen eighty six chip would would have loved Dirty Honey. Like you fit into what I liked, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, but we love Soundgarden and we love that. I'm like, okay, cool, but still eighty six <laughs> chip. But right, I think I said to them, how cool would it be if Dirty Honey. And, and Dirty Honey has gotten to the point where they're selling out thousand seaters, eight hundred seaters, right? Mm-hmm. If if Dirty Honey took out 
an LA Guns or a Tesla or Tesla and Dirty Honey co-headline and you got the legacy and the new kids on the block. Like, I think that would be cool. You could show like the, you know, going back to the other podcast, the the 90s version, like Super yeah. Chunk and Super Chunk and Get Up Kids toured together and Get Up Kids headlined that tour, right? And I think Get Up Kids were kind of like Super Chunk paved the way for us to be here. I would love for a Greta Van Fleet to take Tesla out and introduce Tesla's music to the 21 year olds and and be like, this is where this is where it came from. Yeah. It'll never That'd happen, cool. but I'd love to see yeah. it. Yeah. I'll have to yeah, check out Bad still, I haven't heard them. Those divisions still exist, which is mm-hmm. going back to the theme of our show. Like we do a hardcore 90s show and we do, we're kicking off a pretty hardcore 80s metal show. So we're, basically making the statement that in reality in our lives like this is all just music yeah. like i know the narrative is right like, you can't like one or the other or you're there's two different groups but like we found at least quite a bit of crossover with our audience and hopefully we'll find a, a bunch of more folks who are also into 90s music too yep let's give our um our ratings yeah i'll go I am, last. Uh, yeah i'm in a worthy album yeah um i, I said my piece on it I, I think it's uh it's also maybe the record of the first four that I listened to the least. Um, I sort of listened to it a lot when I first got it, you know, and waiting for Great Radio Controversy to come out. And then once that came out, it was hardcore into that record. And then all the up to up through Bust a Nut, which is actually a terribly titled record, but a very good record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was super into those at the time and just didn't go back as much and listen to this. So it was fun to go back and kind of rediscover it and try to hear it with fresh ears. And I think it holds up really well. So it's a worthy album for me. Where'd you land or chip? Yeah, I would absolutely say worthy album. And I think my love for it has even increased in the last couple of weeks listening to it again. I'm like, this is for me, like I said, other than that, love you, you know, top to bottom, like this is this album to me holds up so well like i love i love it like i i was actually i wasn't surprised that i love it as much as i do but i'm like every song on this is just really like i you know on the 90s podcast you guys talk a lot about about, um artists who kind of uh take up all the time they can on a cd this album clocks in at 54 minutes and you're right they do have a couple intros that last a little bit long but the songs are so good that i don't care that it's 54 minutes like i I, Mm -hmm. i was totally fine with it being 54 minutes like i didn't want them to, to shorten anything so yeah absolutely worthy album all right Tim. I, I i agree with you both this is okay. not a surprise uh based on my comments i think i think because of the time that this comes out 86 and the um lack of pressure that they probably received from uh, you know label and management to do certain things the fact that this was you know before that all happened really helps set up the band to be a little bit different and a little bit more honest and a little bit more straightforward and a little bit more down to earth. Like even, you know, you look at pictures of them, the other guys with long hair, but they're just like, they look like the burners from high school. Like the, you know what I mean? The guys who drove like bondoed muscle cars and, you know, smoked at lunch. Yeah, it, it doesn't look exactly who they are. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't look like to me guys who have hairspray and, you know, worry about mascara. Right. And I think that's what helps inform the music is that it's it's a bit more honest and straightforward in terms of its influences and in terms of its interpretation of those influences. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, 
I don't think there's a bad song on the record. I just think there's, there's some that probably just they don't hold, they don't stand up, you know, the test of time. But there's nothing I skipped. Like there's no, yeah, nothing that was offensive or or terrible. And they don't take any like they do a good job of taking some interesting chances, but never going over the top and just getting completely weird and dumb. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Like they they put a toe in these different sounds and borrow they wear genres a little bit like you can start to but they don't ever like step out of who they are which yeah. is a tough thing to do you know yeah i don't think anybody listening is going to go oh this is just a blank ripoff or this is going to this is a ripoff of yeah. this now they got their own spin on on different sounds and such where other bands aren't so um thoughtful so and I do, I do think, and I, and I actually hope as part of this, you know, this podcast that we do hit some of those third generation poisons and we can say if it wasn't for poison, this band wouldn't exist because there's a, there's yeah. a million of those and, and mm-hmm. those would be fun. Those would be fun to kind of figure out if they were simply following a formula and trying to be mm-hmm. some labeled version of fill in the blank. Yeah. This is a good table setter. This, this one, you know, gets us into the hangar but i really want to crash the plane at some point and see and see how deep we can go and how wild things can get because i know i know that there's a lot of stuff that came out especially in the back half of the 80s that's just bizarre and not not in a not an experimental way but just like wow they really put this out as a single or they really (laughs) they really thought this was a good idea Tim, there's a whole underbelly that you're not even aware of. <laughs> well, and I, uh, that's going to be fun to get into. That's why I'm looking forward to this. I was, uh, you know, I was listening to the Fat Boys and uh, Los <laughs> yeah. Lobos and uh, Billy Joel. So my my music listening really didn't start heavily until high school, which was 88 to 92. And that was getting into like Led Zeppelin. Um Eric Johnson, I got that was one of the first cassettes I bought. It was an Eric. Jo- we probably we could probably do an Eric Johnson album. Yeah, Avia uh, Music well, was yeah. the one I got. Yeah, that was pretty big in ninety. That was a transition album in my memory, right? It yeah. was like tail end of the big eighties metal surge, and then before grunge hits. He was like the. It was like Satriani Vi Eric Johnson. Those were the guys that were the guitar virtuosos that people were into. And I just happened to get it, get it because somebody at my school covered one of his songs at a talent show, but it was like an acoustic song that's on the record. Oh, okay. He did that. He did Braun Yar by Led Zeppelin. So, I mean, he was a wow. pretty good guitar player. I guess so. That's pretty yeah. ambitious. What grade is this? This was senior talent show in high school. Holy shit. So this is like 91, okay. 91, 92. Yeah. And, uh, and his name is Nuno Betancourt. You went to yeah, school I went to. I, I just should have mentioned that I went to school with Nuno Betancourt. No, his name was Joel, and uh, I was like, "Dude, what was that song that you played?" And he, t- he told me the names of the songs, and that's how I got into them. It was the uh, Zep. That's those were like some of the first cassettes I bought of like of of rock that I didn't know. First seven inch, David Lee Roth, "Just a Gigolo." I ain't got nobody. That's the first seven inch I ever bought with my own money. One other thing I want to quickly mention, and we'll get into this as the series goes along, is because they were early and because they were trying to be the everyman and nameless and faceless, like, I don't think, I, I'm assuming Jeff Keith 
Heath is his last name. Maybe it is. Maybe that's his middle name. But these guys like were not Nikki Six or you know Ricky yeah. Rocket. Like they didn't they didn't change your name. Jizzy Pearl. Yeah, right. yeah. They were. I mean, you know, they were Frank Hannon and and yeah, Troy Lucetta. Like they they, they right. weren't you know. Yeah, yeah. Lucetta is not a not a great eighties rock name, but yeah. it's his name, so that's what. It was. Nor is yeah. Brian Wheat. Yeah. No, that's. Not... <laughs> yeah, exactly. If if they were his, he would have changed it to like Brian Blotzer. No, he wouldn't have changed it to Blotzer. That's wrong. But you know what I mean, Blazer. Yeah, Brian Blazer, something like that, with two Z's. Yes. Uh, I think uh, I think we've achieved our goal with this first episode of tackling not only the album but kind of getting context for the time period and our personal uh, recollections of that era. So this was fun. And I'm looking forward to doing more of these. This is going to be every other week. We're not doing it weekly, like 90s rock, because quite frankly, my wife would probably divorce me, I think, if I was doing <laughs> two podcasts a week uh, and it was not my full-time job. So we'll do it every other week. And uh, speaking of that podcast, you can go to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com for both the metal union, I'm just going to call it the metal union because it sounds fun, and the 90s rock union. Um, you can suggest albums for this podcast and that podcast at digmeoutpodcast.com. That is your home for the Dig Me Out universe. Let, let's emphasize this is the first time listening to what we do. We're 100% listener driven. So the 90s podcast, what 90% of the episodes we do are listener suggestions mm-hmm. that our patrons vote on or their yep. direct patron picks so yep. if you become a patron you have the opportunity to pick an album every year come on the come on the podcast with us whatever you want whatever album you want to do um so we don't do ads we turn nope. basically turn it over to you uh the listeners to talk about the records you want to talk about tesla says no machines we say no ads that's right that's our motto <laughs> i love it Exclamation point. No yes. ads. No ads. Uh, we tried to do uh, uh, spot swaps and sponsorships in the past, and it just became tedious. And we we're like, now we'll just go on our own. That's fine. I don't want to have to. I don't have to run right spots to talk about in the middle of the episode. It's just uh, that's too much work. Uh, so this will be available, I believe, Jay, through Substack, right? Uh, and then it'll go to all the podcast feeds. But the- yeah. Yeah, if you go to the digmeoutpodcast.com, there's a little banner at the top for newsletter. Sign up for that. We do um, new music reviews. Uh, we'll occasionally review some documentaries and TV shows and stuff that are 80s and 90s relevant. We also do history of the band articles um, to kind of, if somebody suggests a record, um, we'll do a little write-up on who the band is so you can get familiar with them and hopefully head over to the Patreon and vote for them. That all comes to your inbox. So just a nice little hit of nostalgia um, every day in your inbox from, from Dig Me Out. And you get the podcast that way too, if you want. And lastly, if you enjoyed this or you enjoyed the 90s Rock podcast, consider leaving us some feedback of the positive variety over at Apple Podcasts. What do you say, guys? Want to do this again in a week or so? Let's do it. All right. For Jay, for Jay and Chip, I'm Tim. 
We're out, and we'll be back next time on another episode of Dig Me Out 80s Metal. Yeah.